I gotta say, this I, I didn't think I could dislike what's happening in Atlanta with their rollout of their brand identity and their team and everything anymore. And, and, and then I actually saw the logo and I watched their incredibly stupid unveiling video about it. Yeah. And it's just everything about it is dumb. Everything about it rubs me the wrong way. Um, they, they talk about how authentic they are and they know they're authentic because they focus grouped the hell out of not even this name. They didn't even ever suggest this name to their fans. They said, our fans like the idea of unity and they like the idea of European names and putting FC on them. And so, and so that is what we did. And Atlanta United FC is where we went. And it's like, nobody asked for that. You did it wrong. <laughs> and they're so authentic that their, their unveiling video was all narrated by a British guy. Because that is Atlanta. That screams Atlanta, Britain, England. Even the fact, like, I, I look closely at the logo, and the first thing you notice is that the A is sinking into the circle. It's not centered. It's sinking. The second thing I noticed looking at it, besides the colors and, you know, the general dumbness of the whole thing, is the, the A's in Atlanta on the top part of the roundel, they have serifs. But the two on the outside only have serifs on the outside. The first A has one on the left, and the last A has one on the right. The middle A has one on both sides. They don't. It, it's over designed to a ridiculous degree. The the whole thing is, and it. And I, I am annoyed. If you guys also, couldn't tell, I've never started the show with a rant. Also, the gold <laughs> is the gold color is real bad. Yeah, it's it's a very dark color that just makes the whole thing feel very heavy and. Bad, kind of like the Union. If they lightened up their their design a little bit, the Unions would be first class, absolutely phenomenal. Atlanta's, if they lightened up a little bit, it would be slightly less bad. <laughs> they, they they do not have. There's not even a kernel of of a good design in there. Yeah, and I, also, oh, oh, go ahead, Jason. Oh, I just wanted to add that if we're on the subject of gold, uh, Columbus, you wear yellow. You don't wear gold. That's, that's <laughs> yellow. Let's all be clear. That's yellow. It's 100% yellow. It's also, also, own yellow. Yellow's a good color. Yeah, be the get... only yellow team. Why yeah, not anymore? Not next year. I know, I know. Don't get rid of the yellow. The yellow is great. Yeah, Columbus ditching their, their the only all yellow. They to save for themselves. To go to all black because, I mean, it is a very successful look in MLS. One team has done very, very well wearing all black. Basically, all other MLS teams, stop it. Step back. We know you're trying to emulate us because we're awesome, but you just need to stop. Hey, hey, welcome in. This is Filibuster, the Black and Red United podcast. I am Adam Taylor. On the line with me are Jason Anderson and Ben Bromley. We are all from blackandredunited.com, where you can find us and others writing about DC United, the U.S. national teams, MLS more broadly, world soccer more broadly. Um, and, and tonight we're starting on a very high note, me ranting for about the Atlanta United FC logo and how stupid it is. Because uh, <laughs> it is. It is stupid. What's not stupid, however, is the Women's World Cup and the fact that the U.S. Women's National Team won that sucker. First team to three stars over the shield. We're going to talk about that. Of course we are. We're not putting it at the end of the show this week. It is the first thing on our list. We're, the second thing on our list is D.C. United's really bad last week. Uh, we're going to be talking about that. Two losses in that week. Um, we're going to end the show. Well, not end the show. We're going to end the, the structured part of the show, talking about the Gold Cup, which the United States men kicked off yesterday with a 2-1 win over Honduras. We're going to end the show, if we have time, with 
a Twitter box segment. We're going to open it up to your questions, and God only knows where that is going to take us. Before we do any of that, though, Jason Anderson, what are you drinking? Uh, so in, in my neck of the woods, the storms haven't hit yet. Um, so all day it was just overcast and super humid and threatening to rain without ever getting to it. So it's basically like 90% humidity. And in this sort of weather, there's only one thing you can do, and it is drink gin. Um, so I have a gin ricky made with uh, green hat gin made in D.C., and it is an excellent drink for the, the weather. If you if you think I, I've heard people say gin rickies are like an old too old fashioned, uh, but those people are stupid. They um, are. The the drink's nickname drink is this. air conditioning in a glass. You need to drink this. If it, you're listening to this and you're anywhere near where I am. Uh, which means you're near D.C. at all, or in D.C., you need to drink this drink. Also, I think gin, and especially Green Hat, might be the official drink of this podcast if we had official drinks. Yeah, with with Martin no longer on the show to cast a dissenting vote, I think gin is the official spirit of filibuster. Or, um, or bourbon. We have room for, for advertisers on this show, so... Yeah, if, yeah, yeah. Uh, Buffalo if, Trace, if, Green Hat, gin. Yeah, any distilleries want to want to throw some money or booze our way, we will happily shill your products. Probably not Cuervo, though. Probably, no, no. Probably not. I think that bridge is burned. Sta- we got standards. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I went a different way. I didn't... For once, I was the guy who didn't have time before the show to do anything, so I went to the fridge and I grabbed the first beer in the front, and it was a Vidmer Brothers Hefeweizen out of Portland, Oregon. Um, it has a yellow label, not gold. I'm not going to mess around with that color. Um, it's, you know, it's the quintessential American interpretation of Hefeweizen. It's very good. I like it a lot. Ben, what are you drinking? So we had a housewarming party here at my new house uh, a month ago? Yeah, a month ago. And I am slowly finishing off the beer that was brought to said housewarming party. Uh, Regular listeners may know of my love for Devil's Backbone. Uh, And you may be familiar with their very popular... 8-point IPA, which is their standard IPA, but I am drinking their Bravo 4-point session IPA. I'm showing it to the camera, but none of you will see it because this is an audio podcast. Um, but it's great radio right there, Ben, talking yeah, about yeah, something yeah, 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 yeah. That, that you're right. doing while admitting that no one will ever see it. Exactly. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a, just an easy-drinking session IPA. Uh, it's probably about 4.5%. It doesn't say on the can. Well, it's called 4 points, so I would guess it's probably around 4%. Well, yeah, but the 8 point isn't 8%. Okay. It's, it's about bucks and oh, I see. hunting and such. And, gotcha. Yeah, things I don't know. Uh, but yeah, it's good. Ben, when you held that up just within the frame, uh, because it's a the can is a, like a um, pale green... Uh, yes. I honestly thought you were drinking, like, canned Bud Light Lime. Uh, just while we were, before we actually started recording, it popped up, and I was like, is Ben drinking canned Bud Light Lime? What's happened? <laughs> that would have been outstanding. My, my, when you started leading up I, with the party story, I thought you were trying to get rid of the, like, bad beer that's <laughs> terrible gets in front of you. I have one regular Bud Light still left over from... See, so and now, already, I'm and, really wishing that what Jason said is what you had said. I, well, basically. <laughs> uh, and had it only been the DC United games this past week, I probably would have had the regular Bud Light because DC United would have deserved it. But since the uh, women won the World Cup, I couldn't go with... And I already drank my fancy liquor in honor of them. 
I couldn't, <laughs> yeah, I couldn't go with. Bud but Light. you did, you did come through with. Uh, when you say fancy, you you actually mean really fancy. I mean, re- I mean real fancy. Yeah. 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 Van, Van Winkle fancy. Right. That is quite fancy. Yeah. I. Uh, the U.S. Women's National Team is fancy. They have three stars. No one else has three stars. They're super fancy. They're so fancy. They not, they not only won their third World Cup, the first women's team ever to win a third World Cup, um, which in the men's game meant that they got to keep the trophy forever and a new trophy was designed, but apparently they're not doing that in the women's game because the U.S. were just so fast to get to it. I don't or, think they're doing that in the men's game anymore either, though. No, it was only the first team. To three. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, not only did they did they do all that, they did so in historic and dominant fashion, uh, beating Japan five to two, and it wasn't even really that close. Um, you can't start conversation about this game any other way than the name Carly Lloyd, who was ridiculous. She was unplayable in this game for the first oh sixteen minutes. Uh, she was on a hat trick after five minutes uh, and then completed the hat trick at 16 minutes. Jason, in, in the realm of all-time performances in the sport of soccer, a 16-minute, really a 13-minute hat trick because she scored the first one in the third minute in a World Cup final has to be way up near the top. Well, In a World Cup final against the defending champions. Yeah, Um this wasn't like um, I was reminded a little of watching the occasional Concacaf Champions League game when some poor team with holding on to a slender lead plays the second leg at Azteca, um, and they promptly, for example, like uh, Herediano got, uh, they went to play Club America in the last Champions League, and after like 20 minutes, they were already they'd already given up their entire. They had a three nothing aggregate lead, and they were already it was already gone after 20 minutes. Uh, the difference is that Herediano is the minnow in that situation, whereas Japan is the defending champion and is very, very good. Um, it, I guess it it seemed like um, Japan maybe wasn't ready for what was about to happen um, psychologically. Um, not just giving up the, the early goal, but just the general attack uh, from the U.S., the, the, the pressure, um, the physicality, but... Uh, Lloyd kind of summed it all up um, with her her play, uh, just total belief that that they were going to win and that it was going to work. Um, the breaks went their way. I mean, the first goal came on a corner kick that I can't remember the Japanese player that almost got a foot on it, but she was like two inches from getting a toe um, to that low corner kick. And if she pokes that away, um, I mean, the U.S. probably still goes to goes on the win just based on what we had seen up to that point. But you never know. Um, but sometimes you get lucky and you're good. Um, and anyone who completes a hat trick in 16 minutes in a World Cup final deserves to be remembered for a long, long time and completes their hat trick with a goal from midfield. Um, and the goal, the goalkeeper wasn't even that far out of position. Um, and it wasn't like a lob or anything. She hit a shot uh, from midfield that went in. Um, yeah, it's it's difficult to think of any comparison in a big match against a quality opponent, uh, an equal or close to equal opponent um, internationally or at club level. It was, just, it, was a, it was an absurd performance from Carly Lloyd. Yeah, that third goal is, I mean, it, it has to be the early 
front runner for the Puskas Award, which is FIFA's award for goal of the year. Um, yeah. it, I mean, the, the stakes was, couldn't be any higher. It, it was perfectly taken. If I'm not mistaken, wasn't that won by um, Stephanie Roche from Ireland in this past year? I don't think she won it. She was nominated. Okay. But um, I don't think she won it. Yes, she didn't win. Okay. Well, I mean, if... if um, if this one doesn't win, then I, I don't know what kind of goal is going to uh, outdo that. A hat well, completing World Cup final goal. I, according <laughs> to FIFA. From any, midfield. According right. to FIFA, any goal by a man. Yeah. There's always that possibility. But let's not dwell on... Friggin' FIFA. Yeah, let's yeah. not dwell on them. <laughs> those jerks. Let's instead talk about Jill Ellis, who kind of... I'm choosing to believe that she okie-doked. All of us with her tactics. She started off the group stage really dire, that 4-4-2 that we all panned repeatedly, um, and for good reason. It was not working. Lauren Holiday and Carly Lloyd was a terrible uh, two-person central midfield. Um, but you pull one of the strikers off, specifically Abby Wambach, and you put in Morgan Bryan, and all of a sudden you have the most dominant force women's soccer has possibly ever seen. I don't know if anybody could have played with the U.S. these last three games. China barely held on to only lose by a goal. Germany deservedly lost by two. And then Japan just got absolutely throttled in the final. Ben, did you think that after, after the China game before Germany that, that Jill Ellis was going to go back? And then did you think even after Germany before uh, the final that Jill Ellis would revert because Abby Wambach needed to be on the field? Because I had a hunch that she might, and I was so happy to be wrong. No, I didn't think so. Uh, she's not, despite all the jokes in the lead-up to the World Cup uh, about their similarity, Jill Ellis isn't Jurgen Klinsmann. Uh, she is actually capable of learning and changing. And I am, I mean, it, it, it's, it's impossible. It couldn't happen, but I agree with you. I, I'm... I would love for the first, the group stage, and then the uh, Columbia game to have been just a giant rope-a-dope and just, like, lulling everyone into a false sense of security. It couldn't have possibly happened that way, but if it, if it, if it could, it would have been amazing. But, no, I think that she, she realized that uh, something was working. It was working better than what she had, and instead of selfishly sticking to her system and uh, being unrigid or being rigid about what she thought originally, she was able to adapt. She was able to uh, realize that, hey, this is working better. Uh, I'm not going to let my my hubris blind me. And she adapted and she changed. And I think that should be just as celebrated as any other kind of uh, tactical choices. Absolutely. I completely agree with you there. Jason, I want to ask you about Morgan Bryan, because mm -hmm. Carly Lloyd was deservedly the, the Golden Ball winner, I imagine going away um, in the voters' minds uh, in this tournament. And she was the most outstanding player in the tournament. But, but I think, as we discussed, the putting Morgan Bryan in the lineup to free up Lauren Hol Holiday to run around and do what Lauren Holiday does and Carly Lloyd to go score goals like she does was probably the most pivotal moment of this entire tournament. And Morgan Bryan, a 22-year-old attacking midfielder, being able to sit back and play that number six role as well as she did was 
a little bit mind blowing, and and I really want to shout out her performance. And I think I think you probably agree with me. Yeah, uh, I think it's interesting to see, um, and this is more evidence that we've moved, we've long since moved into an era where you need a good system more than you need your best eleven soccer players. You need a system that allows your best three or four players to really flourish and everyone else has to function within the structure. Um, before Brian was incorporated into the team with uh, Holiday and Lloyd, the structure didn't really make any sense for either Holiday or Lloyd. Um, both of them had to hold back a lot um, and both of them had to restrict themselves. And so it, it really... The whole the whole thing didn't really make a lot of sense, and for Brian to come in, it's not really um, her natural role, um, but for she, she put her attacking midfielder skills to good use. The first touch, the technique, the ability to get the ball away from her feet very quickly, finding um, space to be an outlet. Right, always being available, and and the ability. I mean, attacking midfielders necessarily play with an ego. And she completely put her ego on the shelf and said, "I'm just going to I'm going to do extra work off the ball, so I'm always available. Um, I'm never going to keep the ball for more than two touches. It's always going to be about ball circulation and movement, and it's never really going to be about me being the star. It's going to be about allowing Holiday and allowing Lloyd to to be more of a big deal. Um, the sit." I found it odd that they called it a. Um, they kept calling it this a four-three-three when um, Heath and Rapino were playing alongside Brian and, and Holiday. It was in my book. It was this was a four-four-one-one um, with Carly Lloyd just given total freedom between the two lines to do whatever she wanted, which is perfect for Carly Lloyd. Um, and I, I think you have to salute Brian's willingness to play that role. It's not what she's accustomed to. Um, but the versatility to fit in there, um, maybe she's not as much a natural number 10 as Holiday, which is part of the problem for Holiday playing as the second, the second central midfielder in the, the previous 4-4-2. Um, she's a natural number 10, whereas Hol- or Lloyd is a natural goal-scoring, running midfielder. Um, both of them want to be in the same space on the field. Brian would like to be up there as well, but she, she showed some admirable versatility in being able, being able to play a deeper, not a deep role, but deeper than that, than that role, um, than that number 10 that both, that all three of them would really want. Um, and just, she's kind of the glue um, that, that held that group together. They needed somebody to be a base for everyone else to attack from. Um, and maybe that was the problem before was that, the whole midfield was full of attack-minded players. Everyone's trying to go forward. Everyone's used to being one of their key, the key attacking players to whatever team they are on. And all of a sudden, when everyone wants to go and no one wants to be there to support, you've got a problem. Um, they've got you've got nowhere to go if you don't beat whoever's in front of you. If you're not if you're not playing a killer ball, if you're not getting around your marker on the dribble, all of a sudden you look back and there's no one to go to, and then the attack resets, and then. This is why we had the issue where the U.S. would play three and four short passes and end up going long out due to lack of ideas. Um, having Brian there as an option to play off of really freed up. It's one of those paradoxical things um, in soccer where you need somebody holding off and being there for you underneath to then attack. Your team is going to be better going forward having this defensive player in a defensive position. Um, and... 
she deserves a lot of respect, and I think um, it's going to be an interesting thing to see how they handle that going forward because Holiday has retired from the women's national team. She'll still play in the NWSL, but she's not going to be playing for the national team. And so Ellis is kind of back to square one a little bit. We saw that Brian can play that that number six role in a four four two against China with Holiday suspended. Um, is that where they're going to go, or are they going to try and incorporate somebody else? Maybe let Brian play the way Holiday was playing, and then bring in another defensive midfielder. There are plenty of NWSL defensive midfielders that could fit the system. They might not the, the there might not be as much skill because you're not bringing in someone as good as Lauren Holiday, but um, that's you know they've got time. They've got a full year before they've got to worry about the next big tournament. So they've got time to incorporate somebody. Hopefully. They're already well ahead of this. Hopefully, they knew that Holiday was was going to retire if they won, and and they can start preparations now because the previous year they had a full year to prep for this, and and I'm not going to pretend that there was a rope a dope here. Um, <laughs> they just they just Jill Ellis wanted that system to work, and it just didn't work. And it final the game against China with Brian, she finally said, "I've got to get this player on the field." Um, and fortunately, you know, she saw that she was in the wrong and made that move. Um, but now she's got a full year to figure out what the next step is now that the central midfield has a new hole in it. Yeah, I will say one one more point of praise for Jill Ellis is benching Abby Wambach, which I really wasn't sure she was going to do. Um, all the way up even until they announced the starting lineup for the final, I I was not 100% sure that, that Wambach would be on the bench, which is where she needed to be. She's not starting quality in this tournament. Uh, she got a goal. She she had a couple of big moments, but she was not. She should not have been in the starting eleven. And you know, super sub, absolutely. But and and that's where she ended up. And Jill Ellis, when when the narrative was that that Jill Ellis was in the veterans' corner, essentially right. to to see Abby Wambach, who a lot of people in their minds were was basically de facto co-manager, uh, to see her start the game from the bench was I think a big a big step for, for Jill Ellis and, and freeing in a lot of ways because from there she was free to put Alex Morgan alone up top and, and have Mo Bryan in, in the midfield. And that was obviously the right call. Yeah and, uh, and there is something odd about it's not Wombach's fault, but the team would play so direct when she came on as yeah. if she as if she were incapable of playing any other way. And I don't think that's completely true. I think the team, for whatever reason, there's a weird dynamic there where everyone involved just sort of bought into the idea that you have to play direct if she's on the field, and that's that. Um, I think they – I mean, the goal that they, the um, – which which goal was it? Against uh, Germany, uh, Kelly O'Hara's goal. Um, started with Abby Wambach peeling out wide and holding the ball up in the corner, and then – there was a quick four-pass combination. This wasn't from direct soccer. Um, it's not like she can't play a different way, but whenever she came into the game, the whole team would just start thumping the ball towards her, and that was that. Um, and sometimes sometimes a coach has to notice that there's a weird pattern happening that doesn't make sense. And if, you, if you're in a tournament, you don't have time to break that pattern with a week of training. Um, you just have to make a change. And so it was good that Ellis saw that for whatever reason the team was going to play direct whenever she came in and she said, we can't, we can't win this. We're not going to, we're, at least we're not as likely to win this way. So she made the move and, you know, 
it's it's a big move because it's the team captain. It's um someone with a a yeah, a bigger aura than a team captain traditionally has. Um, few players have ever been so enmeshed with their national team as Abby Wambach. So that was a it was a difficult thing, I'm sure, but uh, she did it and it worked out and and everyone gets what they wanted, which is a World Cup winners medal. Yeah, and Abby Wambach and and Christine Rampone got to lift that trophy together, and it was a great moment for everyone. But I I, I want to close by just throwing back to the actual performance in the five two win. And and also against Germany and even against China, the the high press that they ran out was completely unyielding and unbreakable for times. It was just an unreal, phenomenal performance. I really do think that they would have beaten any women's team in the world by at least five to two uh, in that final. They were just so good, uh, yeah, especially I, at the outset. And Julie Johnson has gotten a lot of the credit over the last couple of games, and deservedly so, but I also want to just quickly shout out the rest of the back line. Allie Krieger, Becky Sauerbrunn, Megan Klingenberg, they were also all amazing, especially, especially Becky Sauerbrunn, who was just phenomenal in all of those games. Yeah, I completely agree. They, I mean, defense is what got them to the knockout stage. And then, even against Germany and against Japan, I mean, they stepped up. If if Lloyd had not scored a hat trick in the final, or I, I guess once she scored the second goal, I, I, I guess that tilted it. But up until that point, I thought Sauerbrunn was actually the best player in the entire tournament. Um, definitely, definitely. Um, obviously, the final kind of overshadows everything because you know, as we talked about, who scores a World Cup final hat trick in uh, well, how many minutes was it? I can't even remember. Sixteen minutes. Sixteen minutes is when she. Right completed it, it was yes. from the so first goal th- to the last was 13 minutes. Right. And, she um, got, and she almost got a hand bone in the 20th minute. Right. So um, that kind of overshadows it, but um, Sarah Brown was absolutely spectacular. And she she didn't make... She, the thing is, she wasn't making the big plays. Julie Johnson got a lot of attention. Yeah. She was making big emergency defending plays. But what's even better for a defense is when you see someone who's just constantly like intercepting passes in an unglamorous fashion, just like, oh, she has the ball again. Um... That's how you know somebody's just outthinking everyone on the other team, and that was Becky Sauerbrunn over and over. So, um, unfortunately, she's not playing in Washington anymore. Um, that would be nice if she were still out here. But uh, the Spirit have other good players, including players that didn't get called in, like Crystal Dunn, who was leading the league in scoring despite having been a defender and defensive midfielder in the past. So, and Allie Krieger, who was called in, yes, and started and, every game. And Ashley Harris, who is apparently uh, sponsored by Johnny Walker, which is a pretty awesome thing. Yes. That is, that why didn't awesome. we lead with that? That was That's about the yeah, it, filibuster thing today. If you, if you missed it, Ashlyn Harris gave all of her teammates, after they won the World Cup, bottles of Johnny, Johnny Walker Blue. All right, there, there are a lot worse ways to end a segment than that, so <laughs> we're going to do it there. We'll be right back. Uh, stick around. This is Filibuster, the Black and Red United podcast. Welcome back to Filibuster, the Black and Red United podcast. Uh, it is now time to look at DC United's last week, which... Never heard of it. I'm, I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you guys. Sucked. It was bad. It was not a good week. DC United crashed out of the Open Cup to a 10-man Philadelphia Union and lost an MLS while themselves down a man. 
uh, to a late goal by the Seattle Sounders, Tyrone Mears, who hadn't scored since, I'm pretty sure, the, the Mesozoic era. Paleolithic. Uh, <laughs> not the Neolithic, mind you. No. Well, obviously. <laughs> uh, so this this was a bad week. There's not a lot of weeks when DC United have lost two games this year, thankfully. Um, these are not the bad old days of when we started All the show. two losses? <laughs> every week involved two losses. Every week now involves at least two games, it seems like, except this one, because DC United are on a 15-day bye week. Um, so that's, that's kind of nice. Um, Jason, rather than breaking down each game individually, let's talk about, let, let's compare and contrast a little bit. So Philly came back from a goal down and won 2-1, to one, despite having 10 men. DC United had 10 men at Seattle, a depleted Sounder side, missing Martins, missing Dempsey. Um, Ozzy Alonso was playing his first game after a long stint on the shelf with injury. Uh, and DC United just, they, they had a couple of moments, they were close, but, but for you, what was the big difference between 10-man Philly and 10-man United in, in the results? I mean, the, the performance against Seattle, I actually didn't really have a problem with, with other than the red card, um, which was just a dumb, dumb thing to do, um, which I assume we'll get into that later. Yep. Um, but the, the game in Philadelphia was just disheartening. Um, to go up a man uh, in bad conditions against a team that has no reason to feel good about themselves and then to score immediately after um, the, the, the – the red card came in the 24th minute. It probably shouldn't have been a red card because Sapong did not make contact with the face or neck of um, Opare. Um, so United gets a lucky break and then scores within three minutes. That game should be over. Um, you should be able to finish that game off without any problems. And the other problem with that was that the Union didn't even do anything that clever. They just kept doing the same thing. They they played Maidana as a false forward they found him to feet, and then all of all of their wide players just started sprinting at full speed, and Maidana would just chip the ball in, and they would run onto it. And United never figured it out. They never adjusted. They never did anything about it. It was just like, well, I guess we'll just scramble and try and stop the the ensuing cross into the box. Um, all it would have taken was like somebody bodying up on Maidana so he can't turn and make that chip, and all of a sudden this strategy completely fails. Um, so tactically and individually and, and really on all levels, the game in Philadelphia was much worse. Um, not only is it crashing out of the open cup, which we all have a soft spot for um, just the nature of how they went out was just awful. And I know it was the B team uh, more or less. I mean, other than Burnbaum and, and you can argue Halsty, um, it doesn't matter. You should not lose to Philadelphia in that fashion. Um, it wasn't like United was unlucky to lose 2-1. to one. Philadelphia dominated that game with 10 men. Um, whereas in Seattle, United mostly shut Seattle down. They made it really difficult for them to play. They hit the crossbar twice. Um, they got tired in the 80th minute, and that was where Seattle finally created enough pressure to get their goal. Um, Which came off of a wonder strike by a guy who doesn't score goals. Right. And, it was and, an unlikely goal. Right, they, they ended um, up beating United, and I, I still can't decide whether I think United got uh, because that the, the thing is I I kept thinking about the theme of you make your own luck, and in that game I couldn't decide whether 
United was unlucky despite their best efforts in that Mir scores his first goal in, in like five actual years? Um, or is it United got lucky in that the one good chance Seattle had, the one good look they were going to get on in the entire game, fell to a guy that hadn't scored in five years, and he scored anyway. Um, I can't really sort out whether which it is um, in that in that case, but um, the overall, given the circumstances, given that it was the fifth game in like six hours for DC United, um, I feel like other than Espindola, everyone gave gave a great effort. Um, they mostly contained Seattle. They mostly slowed the game down. They managed to create a couple looks uh, despite playing down a man. Um, when you go down to 10 and you're on the road and you're on short rest and, and that's the effort you come up with, I mean, it's a loss, so it's hard to accept, but at least you can say, okay, they didn't play badly. It's just, you know, the guy scores a great goal. What are you going to do? Um, the game in Philadelphia was unacceptable. It was an unacceptable effort from almost everyone involved, whereas in Seattle, the only unacceptable factor was Espinola getting himself sent off. And we do need to talk about that red card from Espindola. Um, he was running down a ball that was sitting in the space in front of him. Zach Scott comes to defend, and Espindola goes out of his way to put a forearm elbow into Zach Scott's neck. And, and don't get me wrong, Zach Scott completely deserved it because he went headhunting on Fabi and got in a couple of cheap shots early in the game, and it was um, probably the wrong decision that, that Silvio Petrescu, the referee, made in not sending him off on either of those challenges. He only got a yellow card on the first one and nothing on the second one. Zach Scott had no business still being on the field. That said, you can't murder him if you're another player. You cannot take that the law into your old, own hands. And Fabi tried to, and the, there's a case to be made that he was trying to defend himself by getting a shot in, and Fabi's done this before, if you remember Felipe and that whole thing. Uh, another time Fabi got attacked with impunity. So, and at this point, with Spindle's got to know he's got a target on his back, and he's got to not do stupid things like throw an elbow into a guy's neck, uh, even if even if the guy completely deserves it. Uh, you just can't do that. It hurts the team, uh, who are now going to not just miss him for that Seattle game; they're going to miss him for the game in Dallas as well. Uh, next at week, least. Yeah, at least. And, given, and, given his past history, um, the disciplinary committee could still end up giving him further punishment because it's not like when DC United a DC United player comes before the disciplinary committee. Generally speaking, the things have not gone well for DC United. Except for Brendan Boswell. Right. I'm not saying they're biased. I'm just saying that the history indicates that when DC United's up against the disciplinary committee, the decision tends to go poorly. We should assume maybe another game being tacked on because Spindler's got a past history now. Yeah, and... I mean, yeah, that, that's something he's got to realize. Whether it's deserve it or not, he got a large suspension for shoving a ref, and that's going to follow him, and he needs to realize that, and he can't put himself in situations where the ref has to make a judgment call, and that's just something you've got to realize. Yeah, I... Yeah, he, he screwed up in a big way, and I think he he apologized to the team before after making a bonehead decision. I imagine he might do it again here because that's just not and that's not something you can do. Even when you're the best player on a team, you can't do that. 
Well, the thing, I mean, the thing is, when you're the best player on the team, you have extra responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the circumstances DC was in, you know, as we've talked about, the terribly congested schedule has taken all the energy out of their legs. Luis Silva goes down with a groin injury five minutes in, which is already disheartening enough because Silva's had so many injuries this year. Um, at that point in the game, you've got to realize your your teammates are tired. You've lost one of your – I mean, realistically, one of the three creators on this team has already come out injured for a hard – and had been replaced by a hard worker. Um, the, United could not afford for a spindle to be off the field. Um, and if he wants to – you know, react to the cheap shots he's getting, he should call Moro Diaz and Diego Valeri and every other number 10 around the league. Um, he should call Clint Dempsey and ask him, you know, how do you deal with this? Because clearly... Um, by, ter- by tearing up ref- ref's notebook. Yeah. Well, th- to be fair, Portland was not cheap shotting Clint Dempsey when he tore up the referee's notebook. Uh, the referee was just throwing red cards at everyone in a Seattle shirt. Um, but no... Espinel is going, every team in MLS, this is how MLS has always been, every team in MLS is going to look at your roster and say, okay, this is the one guy on the other team that, uh, above all else, we have to do something about. And if that means play physical, then we've got to play physical. Um, And when teams see DC United, they know that Fabian Espindola is that guy. And maybe he's never been that guy before. He wasn't that guy at RSL. It was Javier Morales. In New York, it was Thierry Henry. Here he's the guy, and that comes with the job. You know, you're the guy. It means, you know, you get a little leeway as far as as off-field discipline, as as at practice, things like that. You get a little break because everyone on the team knows and buys into the fact that you need to be happy and satisfied with the situation to perform well. But the other side of that is that when the team needs you, when the team is tired, when the team is has already lost someone like Silva you have to come through, or at the very least, not do the opposite of coming through. Um, if a spindle stays on the field and just has a bad game, so be it. But he can't retaliate at Zach Scott. He couldn't, he shouldn't have retaliated at Felipe. Um, and part of the problem, too, is that someone for United needs to take on uh, the, the role of guy who retaliates when someone takes a kick at a spindle. Um, that, that seems perfectly fit for Dave Arnaud. Or it just someone. Um, I mean, if Seattle decides that, or if Zach Scott independently decides that he's going to just have a run at Espindola every single time he's near on the ball, then someone for DC United needs to look at the Seattle lineup on the field and say, okay, well, maybe it's Chris Korb against um, Tomas on that side and say, well, guess what? Every time you hit Espindola, Tomas is going to end up in a heap on the ground. And if you guys want to play that game, then you'll end up, without the only creative player you have left um, because their lineup that night involved Chad Barrett and Lamar Nagel. And um, I guess Christian Nagel. Rold- maybe someone has a shot at Christian Roldan, whatever. Um, it's not nice, but if Seattle has decided that the game needs to be played with, um, you know, knives out. <laughs> well, yeah. If you've decided that you're going to play by taking cheap shots at uh, our best creative player, then this is what you get. Um, and unfortunately, it seems like either a spindle that doesn't believe anyone on United is going to be that that enforcer to, to get his back, or he's just impatient, too impatient to wait for that to happen. Um, maybe the players that would do that on United are like, just give us time, we'll get to it. Um, 
and the spindle doesn't have the patience, I don't know. But that that needs to be something that they settle as as a team. Um, and they need because it's not like this is going to end. Um, if you're an opposing team and you you see this game and you see the reaction, you're like, oh, I can't wait for um, the chance to kick a spindle a couple times and wait for him to lash out at me in some ridiculous way and and get him sent off again. Um, and now he and Ben brought up the fact that he shoved a referee. Every referee in MLS is going to come down harder on Fabian Espindola than they would have before because he's the guy that shoved a referee. Um, he He's brought on more and more attention that way, um, and now he's brought on the attention of defenders who are going to say, I'm going to try and provoke this guy into doing something. Um, and so it's not going to get easier for Espindola. He has to step up uh, the progression towards being able to handle the situation better. All right, let's move on and talk about the upcoming transfer window really briefly. Um, DC United is going to be in need of some reinforcement, whether you think it's at fullback or in the attacking core or in midfield. Uh, even though United are still, as of this recording, in first place in the Eastern Conference, first place in the Supporter Shield standings, at least on raw points, um, I think everyone is in pretty solid agreement that they, they still need to bring in another piece or two during this transfer window. Um, rather than talk about who they might bring in and everything, let's talk about a new tool that they, they might be able to use to, to bring someone in and might not, depending on, on who you talk to. And, and that is the targeted allocation money. Uh, brand new, announced today as we record this. Um, it, it, I, I like one of our commenters. I wish I would have written down who it was, but if allocation, regular allocation dollars are uh, Garber bucks, which we've called them before, this is Garber coin. This is the Bitcoin version of that, where it's only good in certain places and in certain circumstances, and the, the, the transfer rate might, might fluctuate wildly. Um, Very Garber coin. Much amazed. Wow. <laughs> Garber doge? Uh, yeah. Yeah, so, so this is uh, basically designed as a mechanism to allow the, the Galaxy, who have three designated players, to go out and sign Gio Dos Santos anyway. Um, they'll have to get Omar Gonzalez to agree to a new contract and then buy down his contract with this new targeted allocation money. And probably trade for some targeted allocation money from yeah. DC United or Colorado Rapids or Philadelphia Union or someone like that. I mean, there's a big pool of teams they could contact. Yeah, that's, that's true, because... The some, of the, some of the reporting we've seen has been basically that teams will not be allowed to tap into this money directly for themselves unless they already have all all three designated player slots filled. Um, and if that's true, if that's true, that's a, such a shitty thing to do. Yeah, I agree. I, that would be a I didn't very see dumb that way to implement that rule. Yeah, I did not see it that written in the rules, but that's some of our SB Nation colleagues. Um, with with connections, have said that that's the way it's going yet, to be interpreted. And to be, and to be fair to them, they have compelling arguments to right. that, to read we're it as saying, such. Yeah, we're not saying that they are wrong. We're saying that that is a dumb rule. If that's we're saying it. MLS is dumb. Right. Yeah, it, 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 if the that's the time. case, then it's going to be a way to funnel money towards the rich teams, away from, from the teams that don't, don't, don't or, or, or can't uh, buy three designated players every or provide three designated players every year. Anyway, DC United will be able to use this money as a tradable asset 
even if they don't sign two more DPs. Um, just something to look out for. It's another thing that DC United can either trade away or trade to Alec to, to to acquire a lot of and then do something else with it. Who knows? But Regard, regardless of whether or not they use it to sign a player, I, I find it highly likely that they would use at least some of it to trade for a draft pick, a, an MLS veteran, something like that. They've proven over the years that that is something that they are good at doing, and I think that above most other MLS GMs, Dave Casper is especially savvy at manipulating uh, the vagaries of MLS roster rules, so I find it highly likely that they will lose at least some of it to trade and get a, but in that same vein, get a decent asset out of it. All right, we will we'll have to wait and see how how that goes. But I did want to bring it up and uh, I will talk add, about the please. newest random convulsion of Calvin Ball. Uh, I would add quickly that we might be in a uh, win now kind of window for DC United with Spindola being in his 30s. Bobby Boswell is 32. Um, Arno's 34. We don't know how long Kitchen is going to be around. We don't know how long. I mean, even though Hamid signed an extension and said he wanted to stay, we. I mean, he's going to be sold during that contract. We can't say for sure whether the big offer from wherever is going to come this winter or not. Yeah. Um, There is a a window that you have before you have to rebuild this team, and it's not big. Um, So trading that money for a veteran, as Ben mentioned, might might not be a surprise to me because um, if you find a veteran that can help this team win this year, you might have to – DC United might have to make that move because how many more years are they going to have before they've got to replace two or three big-name yeah. starters? At the same time, though, DC United has their eyes firmly planted on 2018, and they want to yep. keep building to win in 2015, 2016, right. and 2017. They, they care a lot about the momentum. The organization yeah. cares a lot well, about the momentum that they're building towards the new building. Sorry the, for that turn of phrase. That was bad. I apologize. <laughs> but uh, but the good thing about the, I mean, the the part of the way this breaks down is that it's a hundred thousand every year for five years. Um, so any amount trade, of which you can bring forward, yes. at any time. But you to can use trade in the present. You could trade twenty fifteen's money uh, this year and get a veteran player for example, from one of the wealthy teams, and still have the ability to use that money for however you would use it uh, in the coming years. So there's still room for them to move some of it around. And part of the rule, too, is that you have to use the money for that that year's money has to be used that year or the next year. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you trade all of it this year, then next year you've got 100000 But if you trade 50000 this year, next year you've got to use that other 50000 that has to get used or it gets taken away from you. So it's it sort of forces the teams, like we brought up the Rapids, for example, um, the teams that just don't do anything, that just sort of sit there and wait for players to fall into their lap, it forces them to do something. Um, and so that also means that we should expect United to do something with it soon. It would, not, it would be a surprise to me if that money was still sitting there in a month. All right, we will see what United does with that money. It's it's one more thing to keep an eye on. But but for now, let's turn our attention to international play. The U.S. men's national team opened their Gold Cup campaign uh, Tuesday night with a 2-1 win over Andy Nahar and Honduras. 
uh, Clint Dempsey with the brace before Honduras pulled one back late. Um, then the U.S. Were, were pretty solidly outplayed for most of this one. It was two moments, really, that, that gave them the win, and that, that happens in soccer. Um, I won't say that, that the U.S. didn't deserve to win because you deserve what the scoreboard says you deserve in, in sports. So, But I will say that Honduras played a very good game and, and probably could have won this game, especially because the midfield was so bad to start this game. I mean, yeah, I, I will say that it being CONCACAF, the old adage that you make your own luck is even doubly, triply, quadruply so. Um, you just take what you can get. But, yeah, the midfield was bad. Kyle Beckerman was okay, but the rest of the midfield was so very bad. I mean, um, it was a sieve. Uh, on The midfield yeah. was a sieve on defense. It left the, def- the back line completely exposed. Uh, yes. To the point that Klinsman ditched the diamond and ended up in kind of a four-one-four-one at the end of the game. It was, yeah, it was yeah. weird. It was bad. It was it was very bad. And I mean, obviously, it'll be fine in the group stage because Honduras was the best opponent in the group stage. But it makes me hope for a Jill Ellis style change of strategy. Yeah, good luck with we, that. Once we make it out of the group stage, but since it's Jurgen Klinsman, that will never happen. But, uh, yeah, it's not, not great, Bob. Yeah. Especially, oh, Jason, you, have, you want to add to that? Uh, the, I mean, the problem with the midfield is if you want to play a diamond, you can't play... Yedlin, when he plays in midfield, plays as a winger. Giassi Zardes plays as a winger. Giassi Zardes play, plays as a forward. Right, like a, a super attacking <laughs> winger. You can't ask those two to be your wide midfielders in a diamond and expect it to hold together when Honduras played 5-4-1 and their wingers were inverted and cutting inside. Um, all of a sudden, we ended up with four, a lot of times four on two in central midfield. Uh, that's terrible. Um, and it's it's fine if you want to play Zardes as a winger on the left because Fabian Johnson likes to... He, he, do, he doesn't overlap so much as he underlaps. He comes inside, and, and he still gets forward, but he comes into the middle of the field from left back. It's an unusual look. It's part of the reason why it's effective. Um, so if Zardes stays wide, leaving that space for Johnson to run into, into the middle, that's fine. But on the other side of the field, you cannot, if that's the way you want to do it on the left, you cannot play um, Yedlin as the right midfielder in a diamond. You have to change something over there. Um, because otherwise you just end up with another winger all the way out to the touchline. Uh, you've got guys standing on both touchlines, and then Beckerman and Bradley are, are alone against whoever's left in the middle, which is, as Honduras figured out quickly, Everyone. Um, <laughs> so, hey, tactically, it was just it was a big mistake. Um, and when I saw the lineup, I, I immediately felt like this was a bad idea, and it was a bad idea. Um, and hopefully, um, it, the thing is, there are possibilities. Mix Discarude could play one of these shuttling roles pretty well. Graham Zusi could do that job much better because he doesn't really stand out on the touchline and, and play as an old style winger. But something has to change. Either they have to go to um, the quote-unquote 4-3-3 that they used in Europe, or they have to play a diamond with players that are suitable to a diamond, but you can't have wingers and a diamond. You have to choose one or the other. So one guy who who particularly sucked (laughs) in this game, uh, and I don't think anybody will be surprised by the name I I, I shout out here, was Timmy Chandler. He was (laughs) so bad. 
Why does he exist? He, yeah, I don't understand what he was... Bring back I don't Johnny think he understands what he was Bring back Johnny Bornstein over Timmy Chandler. Put you out there, Ben, instead of Timmy sure. Chandler. The thing, the thing that killed me... Soccer, but still... <laughs> the thing that killed me with Chandler was that he completed 16 of 32 passes, and he is he is a professional playing in the Bundesliga. Um, that, implies, not... that implies that he's used to high-tempo games, and he's used to being... Like reliable with the soccer ball at his Born feet. Bornstein. 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 Hey, Bornstein. Bornstein played in a in uh, the Mexican League final uh, after finally winning his spot back after a long, 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 long time <laughs> spent not playing. Speaking um, of targeted allocation money, I would not be actually sad if they I have, used. I have felt for like two years. Johnny Bornstein. I felt for two years now that Jonathan Bornstein would be an excellent pickup for DC United because yeah. people forget that as an MLS left back, he was really good. He just wasn't quite good enough for the international level. But anyway. Yeah. Timmy um, Chandler, on the other hand, not yeah. so much. Um, and this is a great transition to a guy who didn't suck in this game, and that was Andy Nahar. When the two of them met on the field, because Nahar was playing out on the left side of the Honduran yeah. formation, things went badly for Timmy Chandler. There, there was yeah. one point when, when Nahar just... It, it was a weird thing. It was like Timmy Chandler folded into himself and gave up on existence. <laughs> he, he, he managed to cross his legs up and then fall down spinning the opposite direction that Nahar was going. It was a very weird uh, moment. And then DeAndre Yedlin got in Andy Nahar's way and Nahar just kind of pushed him <laughs> off. Right. Him. Which, uh, is, which, which, if he hadn't done, he would have fallen down and it would have been a foul on Yedlin. So right. the referee probably made the right no call there. And then Nahar's shot was was high. But um, Nahar, I think, for at least the first half, was the best player on the field for either team. Uh, he was right. phenomenal out there. And you guys, I miss him. I miss Andy. Yeah. yeah. I want him back in black and red. So miss bad. you, Andy. You know what was funny for me was that um, the announcing uh, team involved – really seemed to think that, like, oh, well, he, he's... Because Nahar came out after 63 minutes, and the assumption was, oh, well, the, you know, the coach, um, Pinto, must be unhappy with how his wingers are playing because he pulled both wingers. It's a tournament. Like, there's a long-term plan. You don't just play the guys for 90 minutes until they drop dead, and then in the third game, when you have... To, now that they've lost their first game, they have to win that game, most likely, and you're looking at guys that are dead on their feet, and you've got to play the backups. It, it's a long-term plan. It, like yeah, there's a thought involved here. It's not that he pulled Nahar because Nahar was playing badly. Is that he said, okay, you know, we've got to make a change here so that against Haiti and Panama, we can let you loose. Yeah, and, I think that's, that's exactly right. Those teams, it's also way. yeah, it's <laughs> also the the first game of the group stage. It's not a must-win situation at all, uh, especially, especially against the group yeah. favorites. Especially once you look into like the game that that went previously, uh, Haiti and Panama looked really bad, and then really also bad. And then on top of that, Panama ended up not even winning the game. They gave up a late goal to Haiti. So now Honduras is looking at it like we only lost by one to the U.S. and we played really well. This is really a, a great setup for us. It it gets easier from here. For, you know, they play Panama next, and obviously they've got to win that game, but. Panama look like they're there for the taking, and if Honduras plays even close to how well they played against the U.S., they, will, know, they know, will beat Panama. I don't even know if they have to beat Panama. I think, 
I mean, a draw against Panama and a win against Haiti might do but it. Then you, yeah. But then you end up in the third. Then you end up possibly in third, and then there's a whole other group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, differential. I, but I mean, I don't think they'd end up in third because I think the USA will do enough and tiebreakers and whatever. But yeah, but I'm, I'm more just complimenting Honduras in saying that second place is theirs to lose. Like, yeah, absolutely. They have, they have no reason to not make it out of this group. Well, I, I will say this. I wonder if they're capable of being the team that takes takes play to another team that is sitting back. Um, because in this game, they took the play of the U.S., and the U.S. was expecting to be the team in control of the game, and they weren't. I think Panama and I know Haiti are not going to play Honduras with that mindset. They're going to think we need to be conservative. If I'm Panama, based on the first performances, I'm thinking we've got to be conservative because we – look like garbage, so um, we're going to get killed if we play open soccer. Haiti's definitely going to be conservative against Honduras. Playing the way they did, I don't know that they've got it in them. Um, Pinto's got a long history at club level and at national team level of playing very effective soccer against better teams, but not necessarily as effective against teams that are that he sh- his team should be better than. So they've got to make that adjustment where they're the better team on the field and they've got to sort of take responsibility for being the boss of the game, so to speak. But if Panama plays, you know, if Panama tries to attack Honduras, then Honduras is probably going to win that game handily. All right. For the U.S., they have two games left in the group stage. The first one is against Haiti Friday night, 8.30 p.m. on Fox Sports 1, the the group finale against Panama, 9.30 Monday night, also on Fox Sports 1. We'll be talking about both those games next week, I imagine. Uh, hopefully we'll have better things to say than than this week, which was a win, just not a very good one. <laughs> and that probably means we will not be recording on Monday next week either. Yeah, it'll be another late edition, hopefully on Tuesday instead of Wednesday. Please uh, write your congressperson and ask them to tell soccer leagues to stop scheduling games on Monday. And also, also ask also them... Please write your... Uh, non-voting delegate to tell Adam to not schedule podcasts for Wednesday. <laughs> I didn't... This no, wasn't this was me. My this idea. was Jason. <laughs> don't, don't, don't lay this Write your me. non-voting delegate and tell Yeah, Adam. I was going to say, write your congressman, you know, put a PS at the end of your letter asking them not to schedule soccer games on Monday and say, PS, can you maybe do something about DC not being able to vote in Congress? Okay, thanks, bye. Uh, we, we support. We don't support. write K things by though. I feel like that that, <laughs> that may undermine your point. Not the All... first part about demanding <laughs> that soccer not be played on Monday for the sake of one podcast. But the the, the very last word you say is, is like, "Oh, now I can't take it seriously." I you you know you had me. I was with you until until the internet sign off. Not okay. Um, internet sign offs. I think that's, that's I basically have, what a what a Twitter box is. is. And we have one question that we're going to get to tonight in the Twitter box before we say K thanks bye. And that is from Jimmy R at NN Gooner sent us a, a multi-part tweet. Newport saying, news. Uh, saying at filibuster DCU. Uh, this is more MLS in general than DC United, but a on a scale of one to 10, how lame is it that Atlanta has named their club United? 17. And, yeah. I was going to say, <laughs> Uh, really damn lame. I, I I don't even have a number. 
it, it goes off the scale. 17, to 11. Thousand. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's real lame. Uh, and B, is Atlanta really a big enough to have both an MLS club and an NASL club? Of course, the Atlanta Silverbacks play down there right now. Does one suffer or both? Oh, um, yes. Yeah. Well, whether whether Atlanta is big enough for for two teams, I think is is beside the point. I think they could support multiple, you know, PDL uh, level level teams. But the Atlanta Silverbacks, the is already aren't they a league owned franchise yes. at this point in yes. NASL? Their owners were traffic, <laughs> yes. basically, and they ducked out. And so Atlanta is the the Atlanta Silverbacks are going bye bye. Also, very, very I'm, I, I'm still not convinced that the NASL will be around in five years. Yeah, I'm, I'm not problem. either. I, I don't know that the Silverbacks will fold next season. I, I think if the rest of NASL has any sense, they probably will. But the fact that they're in NASL means that a lot of them, anyway, don't have a lot of sense. Um, so we'll see. I, I, I think that the Atlanta MLS franchise, with the stupid name, um, and the, the stupid, stupid derivative name and colors in American soccer that are completely ripping off an established and, and well-loved franchise. Um, I, I think they will do just fine in that market. They, they had 4,000 people or something at their logo unveiling for a team that's not going to play for another couple of years. They have 21,000 pledges for season tickets. Yeah, they're, they're going to be just fine. The, yeah. the Silverbacks will not be. The Silverbacks, yeah. uh, they already play way out in the suburbs. Um, I think, anyway, my understanding is correct. They play out in the suburbs, not downtown where, where the new team will play. Yeah. And, and they're, just, they're, they're not long for this world. Yeah, I mean, Atlanta has a beltway, and the way the, the perimeter the, is what they call right, it down there. Right, and and the way the world works there is like there's inside the perimeter, and that's if you live in Atlanta, you're willing to do things inside the perimeter, but outside the perimeter, it's like it might as well be on the moon. Um, and the Silverbacks play on the moon. Uh, yeah. So that's a problem for them. The NASL is a huge problem for them. Um, the fact that the, the NASL, NASL is a huge problem in general. Yeah. Mostly um, for themselves. Yeah. Right. The, you know the the fact that the Silverbacks are will will have to also answer for the fact that the MLS team will instantly have a better roster because MLS provides even if they sign no designated players, which no expansion team does anymore, MLS provides you with more money than an NASL team is going to be able to cover for salary. Unless your name is especially a league-owned NASL team. Right. Unless you're the Cosmos, and even then that's uh, iffy because the Cosmos have plenty of MLS. Offshot, you know, guys that have been cast off by other MLS teams that are probably making seventy-five thousand um, dollars. So, you know, the, the the winner of that battle for Atlanta, if if the Silverbacks are even around to make it a battle, will be the unfortunately named Atlanta Soccer Team, which is uh, the only thing they're ever going to be called. <laughs> Atlanta Soccer Team, soccer. And I want to say again, soccer. <laughs> Ben really likes trying to pronounce their hashtag slash dying. Thank you all for listening to Ben's gurgling there. <laughs> that was a nice death rattle, Ben. Uh, find us at blackandredunited.com. We're on Twitter at filibusterdcu. That is where you can send your Twitter box questions. You can also send them to our more traditional email 
inbox. That's filibusterpodcast at gmail.com. Email is electronic mail. It, it is, in fact. We accept love letters, hate mail, and advertising inquiries. Uh, find us on iTunes. Find us on Stitcher. We are on SoundCloud. Uh, mostly, though, tell a friend about the show. If you enjoy the show, I'm sure you know other DC United fans, some of whom may or may not be turned on to the experience that is the Filibuster podcast. Please tell them about us and, and spread the word so that we can get more listeners and you can have more fun talking about us with other listeners. See, everybody wins here. Everybody wins. Yeah, everybody. Mostly, mostly us. Somehow. You know, it's, it's no, like the no, underpants. No, step one, record podcast. Step three, profit. We haven't figured out step two. For Jason and Ben, I'm Adam. We will talk to you real soon. Say goodbye, Jason. Goodbye, Jason.